Hello. Um, I was wondering if I'm going to be uh, named an honorary citizen of uh, Nebraska. <laughs> and uh, more importantly, will I ever have to apply for a US visa ever again? <laughs> um, good afternoon. It's, uh, it's, oh wait, let me get my presentation up. It's, it's my great pleasure to be here. I, uh, I never thought that I would have the honor to address the plenary. First of all, I would like to thank the organizing committee for inviting me and all of you for being here today. I know that there's lots of people uh, following as well on the, um, the streaming live and on Twitter, so hello to all of you as well. I guess it is fair to say that I'm not only pleased but also very nervous to be here. I am relatively new to the digital humanities field and so many of you have much more experience and know-how than I do. Over the past few months, I have spent time researching initiatives and reading articles, blogs, and online discussions about DH that I thought could be relevant to this talk. It is clear to me that there are many qualified people to talk about this subject. I will, however, do my best attempt to present an overview of the current situation of DH in terms of openness and inclusiveness drawing on the specific work and experiences that we have had establishing the Red de Humanidades Digitales, the Red HD, in Mexico. It is critical to point out that this talk does not pretend in any way to be conclusive. This is not the result of a definite study, but rather an account of the journey traveled so far and a reflection on where and how to go from here. We have been working on the Red HD for over two years, but much of our work has been very practical in terms of community building. The next steps, as I will discuss in this talk, are the process of reflection of what we have created and how this fits in with the so-called digital humanities community. There seems to be a general consensus that over the past few years, there has been a boom in the field in general. William Panapacker's much-cited comment after the 2010 MLA convention that digital humanities is the next big thing is just a starting point for an array of articles both within the academia and the general press about DH and its importance. This long-standing conference has become larger every year with the number of submissions growing considerably. Having a paper or post-it accepted is a feat in itself. National and local DH events abound. The National Endowments for the Humanities here in the States now has an office for digital humanities, and which is a source of great envy of DHers around the world, I know, that provides funding as well as the institutional recognition that DH exists. I understand that JISC in the UK has something similar. DH centers and departments are appearing all over the place, together not just with summer courses, but also masters and DH, uh, PhDs. I finished my PhD at UCL Information Studies Department just months before the creation of the UCL Center for Digital Humanities. But my thesis supervisor, Claire Warwick, once generally said to me that I was their first PhD graduate. DH, in that sense, has come a long way towards establishing itself as a recognizable and dynamic field. And yet, as we are all aware, an unequivocal definition of DH continues to trouble and elude us. I don't think this is a sign that there is something fundamentally wrong, but it does make things a bit difficult in the most unexpected situations. Uh, for example, coming through US immigration on my way over here, I was asked why I was, uh, 
why I was, what was the purpose of my visit to this country, and I said, oh, well, you know, I'm coming to a conference. And uh, the man said, well, what's the conference on? And I said, it's digital humanities. And he said, well, what is digital humanities? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, we can, how long do you have, basically? And um, I think we have all come across this at some point or another, usually with colleagues or university authorities and not the immigration officers, but uh, I, that's the point. So when setting up the Red HD in Mexico, I searched in vain for a universally, and for a lack of better word, certified official definition that I could present to my superiors. I contacted several people about this, and in general what I found were useful working definitions, but not one documented, you know, this is it reference that I could take to the authorities and say, this is what digital humanities is. And in the last few years, this has led to more vocal disagreements as we struggle to define on a definition of what DH is and what DH does. In 2010, Tom Scheinfeld wrote in his blog, Why DH is Nice, that we're the golden retrievers of the academy. <laughs> At least on the surface, this seemed true enough. My experiences as a PhD student at my first DH conference, which was actually University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign 2007, was how amazingly nice everybody was. At the risk of maybe remembering it all too naively, I did feel that there was a little or no hierarchy, and there was a genuine interest in hearing what other people were doing. And I believe that this continues to be true. I have compared notes with other people from my age, from uh, other fields, and you know things can get quite, quite vicious. However, the community has grown considerably, and the intention and focus on us has as well. There is more of a push towards defining what we do, which I think becomes, makes sense when you become more institutionalized, and what we are. And this has led to discussions. As Gold writes in the introduction to debates in the, in the DH, that this is a field in the midst of growing pains, as its adherents expand from a small circle of like-minded scholars to a more heterogeneous set of practitioners who sometimes ask more disruptive questions. But behind this problem of defining DH, that is what we are and what we do, I think there is now an additional problem, which is who is we? One of the things that characterizes DH, I think, is that the community has worked very hard towards building the DH community. And most of this work has come from enthusiastic and generous scholars who have given much of their time to developing it. People volunteer, serve on committees, develop courses, organize meetings and presentations, and most of them outside of their daily workload or on top of their daily workload. This community has traditionally viewed itself, as with the conference, as welcoming and opening and open. Collaboration and cooperation are seen, are seen as specific traits of DH that differentiate it from the more lone scholar traditional humanist. It seems to be that openness and a desire to work with others is fundamental to the way we think of ourselves. And yet, over the past few years, this community has become aware that it isn't so open or universal as it thought it was. Several scholars have been pointing, it to, have been pointing this out for many years now, but it is only in the past few years, and this seems to coincide with an increase in the debates on defining digital humanities, that it has become more of a mainstream discussion. It has been pointed out that the DH community is predominantly made up of white male scholars from a handful of English-speaking countries. 
Issues related to ethnicity, gender, race, language, and class have begun to crop up more frequently in discussions. These are complex and important issues that have to be addressed on many different levels. Additionally, so many of these issues are applicable not just to digital humanities, but to the academic setting in general. Recently, a non-academic friend of mine asked a physicist at a party um, to please explain to her in plain Spanish what her recent paper was about. And she replied in Spanish, well, it would have to be in plain English because they would never think of publishing in another language that, that, that wasn't English. It's, it's just the default. This does not mean, of course, that the answer to this is, oh, well, you know, that's just the way the world works and continue to accept the status quo because there's really nothing we can do about it. One of the things I like most about DH is the sheer energy of it. As I mentioned previously, so much of DH success is thanks to the hours and enthusiasm of individuals who work together. If we can apply this same energy and enthusiasm to become more inclusive in all senses, I believe that DH can be another great example of how at least some things can be changed. I am fully aware that many of these issues can and have been studied from cultural, sociological, and anthropological points of view. I believe that these disciplines have much to contribute towards understanding how and why we function in certain ways. Authors like uh, Domenico Fiormonte, Frederick Clavert, Alan Liu, Todd Presner, and Tara McPherson, just to name a few, have discussed diverse aspects of DH and culture. All of them argue to some degree that DH has concentrated primarily on building and making, but rarely stopped to reflect from a cultural theoretical perspective on the resources and tools that are being created. For example, when writing about DH building, Tanner Higgin remarks, these efforts are often performed under the guiding ethos of collaboration, which often becomes an uncritical stand-in for empty politics of access and equity. He continues, DH does have its strong suits, the ethics of copyright, privacy, and open source. But as an intellectual community, its positions on race, gender, class, and the environment are under-theorized and under-implemented. My background, however, is in library and information science. And so my focus has been much more on research productivity and how academic communities form, communicate, and produce research output. The work we have done with the Red HD has looked at how DH resources are being produced, by whom and what for. How do these individuals communicate and publish their work? Do they know each other? In what communities do they participate? Does anybody use these resources that they produce? How are these DH projects funded? And what happens to these resources afterwards? There is quite a bit of work on these topics within the DH community, but once again, these are focused primarily on projects and resources developed in English and from scholars in a few countries. So even if I make no claims to utilizing deeper cultural and sociological theories, certain questions inevitably arise. For example, when answering the question, is there, an Anglo, is there a non-Anglo-American DH? And if so, what are its characteristics? Fiormonte, speaking in particular about Italy, 
argues that the Comunidad Informática Humanística has existed for some time now, but that it has been largely obscured and unknown by the official writing of DH history. What about other parts of the world? If DH wants to become more inclusive and global, how do we go about finding these DH practitioners that have been excluded? Moreover, how do you find people that do not necessarily identify with DH or even know that DH exists? Is there anybody out there? Is the same title that I used for a paper co-authored with Ernesto Priani that was presented at DH 11 at Stanford University when we had just started working on Red HD. The audience was much more reduced there. And, uh, and so I think it is worth repeating some of what I said, as well as adding on what has happened over the two-year period since. It is important to note that this is a local case study. Although I believe that some of these points are valid for other parts of the world, I cannot speak for them. I hope that the methods that we used, as well as some of the initial findings, will be useful when we are designing strategies to try and be more inclusive and open. A bit of context is necessary, though. Those are all the slides I forgot to go through. Um, that's the one I want. A bit of context is necessary. I work at the National Autonomous University of Mexico, known by its acronym uh, the UNAM. The main campus is situated in Mexico City. And if you like the look of it, yes, we are hoping to put in a bid to host the DH conference soon. The UNAM has over uh, 300,000 students, undergrad and postgrad, and almost 40,000 academic staff. So it's a very, very large university. Around 40% of the country's research is done at the UNAM. So, uh, so in the sense, what I want to do is kind of put some of the results that we have from, from the work that we have been doing is, of course, work that has been doing at the UNAM, which is not the same or necessarily representative of other universities in Mexico, because, of course, just because of the sheer size, you know, we're already kind of talking uh, a very different situation. For many years, I, uh, I worked at the digital publishing department located in the Computing Services Center. I've never understood why it was in the digital public, in the computing services center to begin with, and it's still within the computing services uh, center. The department began in 1997 digitizing Mexico's national newspapers. During my time there, I worked on an array of projects. We worked on electronic journals, and from here, uh, my first experience with trying to use XML and accentuated with acentos, characters, a nightmare and a short digression that I agree with those that argue that computing already has a bit of a linguistic bias. We also worked on a variety of digitization projects, for example, uh, 19th century Mexican literary journals, colonial archives kept by the Franciscan monks, an online encyclopedia of indigenous traditional medicine, to name a few. And many of these projects came from the humanities. But it wasn't until I was in the UK doing my PhD that I discovered digital humanities and realized that much of the work that we had been doing was actually related to this field. Upon returning to Mexico three years ago, I proposed a research project at the Institute for, Bibli for Bibliographic Studies, where I now work, for benchmarking and diagnosing the creation, use, and dissemination of primary digital resources for the humanities. Of course, I wanted to use the term digital humanities, but I thought it might be a bit too much for the evaluating committee to take in. 
Just the words digital and humanities in the same sentence was making them a bit nervous, but enthusiastic as well. And I will talk a bit more about this later. So when we, when we started working on, on this project, uh, what we basically had was uh, four, four main objectives. What we wanted to do was raise awareness of DH. We were pretty sure that digital humanities as, 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 as the term and the field and all the work that has been, been done wasn't known to, to, to many people. We wanted to identify key scholars and projects. Um, we wanted also to investigate key local issues. So look just not at um, what kind of uh, projects we were finding, but also if there were relevant local issues that, that that could be of interest. And what we also wanted to do was consolidate internally and then find ways of uh, linking externally. The question, of course, was how? I mean, we, we couldn't really kind of wander around campus asking people, oh, are you a digital humanist? And uh, as many of you know, finding DH resources and tools online is hard. That, that's a constant. Um, issue where although things are put online, you, that's not necessarily means that everybody can find them. So how are we going to find these DH projects? And, um, and how many of these people that we were actually going to talk to would then say, yes, I'm, I'm a digital uh, humanist. So in the end, what we did was uh, four workshops. These ran between September and, and July, so this is 2011. That was the first bit, the, the part of, of scoping. And basically what we just did was the, the projects that we knew of and the people that we knew that had been doing really anything to do with computers and humanities, we went for the broadest definition possible. We couldn't really afford at this point to, to, to be very narrow about our definition of, of digital humanities. So anything from digitization projects to more specific um, markup of uh, Tay projects, for example, that we found a few um, would, would went into this category and then kind of told people to tell other people and that's the snowball effect. And, um, and then from there, kind of the concrete actions that we wanted to, to, to start working on and then kind of going from this workshop environment to a network environment to maybe possibly, we still haven't done that step, um, an association. So for the, for the scoping for the um, workshop, what we did was we, we focused on seven key topics and actually they're, they're behind me, I'm not going to read them. And actually each one of these seven key topics, what we had was a whole bunch of questions. And if you want to uh, have a look at those questions because they, they, they're, they're an interesting list, uh, the, the reference is, is down below where it's been published. So we would go through these questions and um, kind of trying to find out what were the issues uh, related to building the, the, the DH project anything from institutional recognition, issues about planning and, and development, uh, what about finding people to work on the projects, had they been doing anything on dissemination, and did they know anything about the use of, of the resources, and um, what was going to happen to these resources afterwards. Now, uh, the, the results are in this paper, but I, I wanted to kind of just highlight a few of, of the most significant, I think, and relevant uh, things that we came across. One of the first uh, comments, which was, uh, there are other people like me, you know, this kind of uh, a sense that people were very isolated and actually didn't know that there were other people that did uh, computing in the humanities. It was kind of that first <gasps> moment that I, lots of you had, but, you know, 20 or 25 years ago, well, this was two years ago. 
And uh, one of my, my favorite quotes is this one, uh, university authorities have a vague notion that this sounds important. And this was related to institutional support and recognition. So in terms of support, they kind of found that if they were saying digital and, and, and kind of talking about technology, that uh, the authorities would say, well, you know, this, this, this sounds important, but without really kind of fully comprehending, I think, the, the, the implications. So what that meant was although there was interest, there's really a, a lack of coherent policies or structures to have really any impact. So that means that what we have is a lot of kind of small personal in initiatives of very enthusiastic individuals, but nothing that kind of can permit that to, to, to grow and uh, a bit more. In terms of funding, uh, surprisingly, I have never had any trouble getting funding. And, and that, I think, can kind of differ from, from other countries. Um, I'm, I'm just, I don't, I don't know if this is the same situation, for example, in uh, Nicaragua or in Venezuela, or just to mention, you know, uh, other Latin American countries. This is also, you have to remember the UNAM, because most of the people from the workshop were from the UNAM. So the UNAM is such a big university that also funding is, is usually not such a big problem. Um, the problem, of course, is when I looked at the figures for funding that we had and the figures for funding that I've seen on the, uh, is it national, that the, the funding body here in the United States, you know, one is in pesos and the other one is in dollars, and there's really big differences, I mean, of the amounts of money we're talking about. And more worryingly is that, you know, most of the funding was one to three year periods, and that was it. There was nothing else afterwards. And this, of course, is a, a big issue with uh, sustainability and long-term projection, because, of course, you have an institutional structure that isn't thinking about how they're going to keep these projects. Uh, in terms of uh, human resources, uh, of course, finding training and retaining human resources was, of course, a really big uh, concern. One of the participants says, we now know what we want. So in a sense, kind of doing the first project was difficult because they didn't really know what, what kind of human resources they needed. But now that they've done the first project, they can tell you specifically what it is that, that, that they need. And that, of course, uh, helps when we're thinking about the kind of um, courses and things that we can build now that, or that we can offer to kind of help, help out with this. But at least two years ago, and I think that's still the situation now, although we're working on it, is that there is little learning support. So we don't have any kind of formal centers or programs. And um, we have very rigid university structures, which means getting any kind of new course, for example, at undergrad level or postgrad level, is actually very difficult. Although yesterday I heard a talk from somebody from uh, New Zealand who was kind of going through the process that they've had to go through, and it sounds just as bureaucratic and complicated as Mexico, so it's obviously not something just, uh, just from this part. And um, there was uh, lots of um, a big need for things like best practices and guidelines, and uh, all of them said that they would really have appreciated uh, help with the steep learning curve that they had gone through when they were developing the project. Another issue, of course, related to the institutional support is the sustainability, just starting with things like server hosting. Most of the projects were hosted on either the university servers, but kind of on a, on a, on a do you mind if I put the project here for a little while uh, kind of agreement. And which, of course, you know, kind of 
if you have an, any kind of librarian background, you go, oh, you know, what, what, what's going to happen once the head of department goes or that particular IT person, you know, decides that we're going to clear the disk. And, um, and we actually did a registry of, of projects um, at that point, projects that we found at the UNAM. And since then, I've gone back, and at least there were about 50-something projects. And just looking at them, at least three or four have just, like, disappeared. And that's in, that's in a two-year period. So what's going to happen, you know, five years or ten years? A lot of people were actually paying for server hosting, you know, on, by, with their own money because it was just easier. And um, so that, that, that's something that, that, that I found particularly worrying. And one of the participants said, um, when does a project become a university service and therefore somebody else's responsibility? So, um, I mean, I know this is, from, from what I've read, this is a problem in, in not just, obviously, in Mexico, in lots of places. And, um, and I've seen that one of the solutions has been kind of partnering with, with libraries to, to see if, if they can help out with this. And what we did notice um, was an absence of the library community within the, it was not called digital humanities community at that point, but the people that we were finding. There was no, nobody from, from libraries. And, um, and that's something that we really have to work on. And, and I think it's unusual because in most places, I think that the library community has played a, a, an active role. So we have to see what, I think that might be kind of more of a local issue. And uh, so we want to look more into, into that. In uh, terms of preservation, uh, things to do with preservation, people were aware of it, but it was just simply not addressed. Um, so those are just kind of a few of the things that, that, that we found. And um, so who did we find? Kind of the end of the workshop, you had to put up your hand and say, yes, I'm a digital humanist. That was, uh, that was kind of the success rate of the, of the workshop. And I would like to do something about it. That was, I would like to participate. And that's kind of what led us to think that we just didn't want to leave it at a workshop. We wanted to build some kind of a network so that we would continue to work on these issues. Um, together as, as, as a group. And um, we started off with approximately 20 to 30 practitioners in four Mexico City universities. And uh, we're kind of, the idea is to continue the, the snowball effect. We now have 70 subscribers to our mailing list, so that's, that's been growing. Um, talking about center and periphery, once again, universities in Mexico City uh, have, are kind of the ones that have the most uh, spotlight and importance, whilst a lot of the periphery ones um, find it more difficult to be kind of included. So one of the other things that we have to do is also kind of start talking to universities from, from, from other parts of Mexico and, of course, uh, other parts of uh, Latin America. So what we did was we kind of set out a, set, um, a list of challenges and of things that we wanted to, to address. And, I mean, just starting with increasing involvement of uh, DH scholars or find more DH scholars, uh, we wanted to discover and register more research and projects, so kind of continue to this outreach and, and finding people, kind of be very active with that. Because if we just sit there and wait for people to come, they're, they're not going to come. They, they don't know we're sitting there. I, and um, so kind of be very active looking for these people. Uh, wanted to work a lot on developing best practices and guidelines in Spanish, uh, document what we're doing, because so many of these projects, kind of nobody knew about them, but also because 
they weren't documented and there was kind of no way of getting information uh, about them. Incorporate the library community and uh, expand the group and develop mechanisms to increase national and international collaboration. And standing here is an absolutely fantastic opportunity for uh, increasing uh, international collaboration. So we kind of took these challenges and said, okay, well, what are the actions? And um, well, we started off with a web page, which is what you do. And we, uh, we founded the, the Red Humanidades Digitales, set up a web page with all the difficulties that that entailed that I'm not going to get into, but we know we've, we, we finally managed because this is, of course, no budget, no support kind of project. And um, so we try to put a lot of information about news and, 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 and courses that exist, uh, not just in Mexico, but in Latin America. And slowly, I think we're getting more and more uh, news from different parts of, of this region. We, we were very concerned about the fact that, um, that people were getting funding for doing projects, but then they weren't getting any funding for the, for the recognition, not, not funding, they weren't being uh, recognized for the work that they were doing. And we thought, well, you know, the evaluation committees don't really have a way of evaluating these type of projects. So we've been working on a kind of checklist, best standards, um, guidelines to, to, to work on this. Regular meetings, uh, we did a special issue on digital humanities at the Revista Digital Universitaria to kind of start getting this information out in Spanish. We've organized a few uh, digital resources in the humanities uh, workshops. At the beginning of 2012, we organized the Primer Encuentro de Humanistas Digitales, and that went very well. And um, so kind of, and that was mostly in Spanish, and Glenn Worthy over there was our keynote speaker. Um, but really, I mean, what we need now is to try and find and, and work on larger, more complex and sophisticated projects because they're still very kind of individual and, and, and small and sometimes not terribly ambitious uh, type of, of, of work. Uh, recognition and uh, the part on, on, on outreach. And, and I think that this outreach is coming at a particularly good time because of the general feeling uh, with, with ADHO in, in general on this focus on expanding and this focus on, on being more inclusive. And so I think that these things are coming together at a, at a really good time. So I'm just going to give you uh, a bit of an overview. Some of you may, may probably know about a lot of these, but I kind of wanted to put them all together so that we, you can see how much is actually going on right now. Um, other, other international associations, the Red Humanidades Digitales, the Japanese Association, um, the recently, the Humanidades Digitales Hispanicas, which is HDH uh, in Spain, was also uh, founded. So, you know, we're getting, I think we're going to get more and more of these associations uh, cropping up. Things like, uh, for example, with the DH conference, um, in the one at Stanford had the call for papers in five languages, and this one actually had the call for papers in 12 languages. So I think in that sense, you know, there's, there's an effort to get, to get this out. Now, of course, the question is, what kind of an impact does this have? I mean, just because we put out the call for papers in more languages, does that actually mean that we're getting more people from, from different backgrounds? And if that's not happening, then what else do we have to do to, to, to encourage this? Um, the ADHO uh, has the Multilinguism and Multiculturalism Committee, and uh, they just recently announced the inclusivity, which I think kind of is also part of this, this, this work that's being done. Um, 
special interest groups. Uh, I don't know if some of you have heard about the Global Outlook, uh, but the Global GoDH uh, is the, the objective is to help break down barriers that hinder communication and collaboration. And uh, in this particular case, they talk about high, mid, and low income economies. What I think is particularly important to note is that it is not an aid or an outreach program. So it's not a question of, oh, you know, we'll help you out. The, the idea is how we can actually uh, increase collaboration. In terms of discussion lists, um, for example, GoDH actually has a, a large number of, of subscribers. Red HD has also been, been growing considerably. And also, once again, I think we have to, so this is what's happening, and then maybe we should turn around and look at, at, at what it means. So how are these discussion lists being used? Are they different to, say, te or humanist? And, um, and are these differences, are they cultural, are they subject differences, and how are they working? It might be a bit too soon to do that right now, but it's kind of a food for thought for the next few years about how these things are actually working. I think initiatives are a great idea, but ever so often we have to turn around and say, well, you know, are they doing what we, what we want them to do? Because sometimes they behave in the most unexpected ways. Um, a lot of work on finding projects and people, and uh, around the 1880 days is, is, is one of these examples. Um, the Red HD has a database of, of DH projects, and we actually just started with the ones at the UNAM, but now we're working on getting other Mexican and Latin American universities to actually start uh, inputting their, their information. Now, the interface is in Spanish and the help is in Spanish, so we're hoping that that would kind of uh, encourage uh, this, this region that hasn't participated in, in, in other ways to, to to put this information in so that we can start getting a real idea of uh, what's out there. Another way that we thought about finding projects and, and people was, uh, this was actually an initiative uh, by uh, Paul Spence at King's College London, but it was organized by uh, CenterNet, Red HD, HDH, Universidad Nova de Lisboa, and the Universidad de Sao Paulo, and um, was actually organized a, a day of, um, Day of Digital Human. I start getting my HDs and my DHs all mixed up. <laughs> uh, a day of DH, uh, we organized the Dia HD, and it's exactly the same model as, as Day of DH, but what we wanted to do was specifically target Spanish and Portuguese um, speaking people. And uh, we did this on the 10th of June, and we actually got 97 blogs, 72 in Spanish and 21 in Portuguese, and there's the breakdown by, by countries. And uh, we haven't really kind of analyzed most of the information. This is just uh, some of the initial impressions. But for example, many of the blogs were projects and not individuals, which I found really interesting. So people were blogging, but kind of from a project perspective, not from an individual perspective. And, um, and, but others were, there was a, a, quite a few blogs on, uh, on kind of reflections on what hu digital humanities is, which surprised me for something that was kind of uh, apparently just, you know, the first time that, that, that they were coming in contact with, with digital humanities. Um, a lot of ideas on visualization, so mapping who and what is out there, and there's actually quite a few things that, that came out from there. But what I really liked was the comment section. There were so many comments on, on, on people's blogs. So ideas, let's work together, do you know so-and-so, did you know this and this? So it, it, you know, it almost became like a, a communication channel. So anyway, we'll hope to be reporting on, on, on that information uh, at some point. 
Um, on Twitter, uh, these are some of the hashtags that, that have been working on this, and these are some of the events that, that, that are coming up, and of course the next DH conference is gonna be in, in, in Australia. So the question a bit is, uh, so what or now what? You know, so, so where do we kind of go from, from this particular uh, point? Well, one of the things that, that I would like to kind of remark as a concluding statement is that during this talk, I have not touched on the subject, for example, of computing power or infrastructure. But of course, especially with DH, this is a particularly relevant issue. Infrastructure is not ubiquitous, and certain parts of the world, to varying degrees, do not have the connectivity available in other countries. From simple things like trying to follow and participate in cutting-edge discussions on Twitter with a less than reliable Wi-Fi connection is frustrating at best. Although I think we all got a taste of that uh, the, the past few days, you know, when, when by the time you send your tweet, you know, the session was over like an hour and a half ago. So, um, but that's what life is like. <laughs> that is what life is like for uh, some of us in other countries, you know, you don't always have access and the internet connection comes and goes if you have it. And, um, and to procuring hardware and software necessary to develop large scale projects are of course really important issues. Uh, and yet the lack of technology can also help us think about DH from a different perspective. Instead of seeing what we can do with a lot of computing power and technology, what happens if we turn this around and see what we can do with a little? It pushes the limits of our creativity and our capacity to solve problems and distances us from using the latest state-of-the-art technology with which we can sometimes be blinded. An example of this is minimal computing, which is actually a GoDH project that is asking questions such as what are the best practices for application construction in order to maximize availability and decrease obsolescence. A forefront issue, another forefront issue is of course language, and this is one of the main barriers to inclusiveness. There are two approaches here. Making more information available in other languages and making the English used as the lingua franca more accessible for non-native speakers. For the DH conference, we now have the call for papers in several languages. On GoDH, I have seen several invitations and calls for participation going out in more than one language. The websites of Adho and CenterNet are looking into ways of getting more content translated. In the cases of short pieces, um, such as calls for participation, this seems doable. However, in general, let's be honest, being inclusive is really hard work. Ernesto Priego, a blogger on Twitter, tries to make a lot of his work available in both English and Spanish and has frequently pointed out the double amount of work involved. In the same way, scholars whose first language is not English have mentioned how time-consuming participating in a discussion list is as it takes them longer to write and explain their ideas whilst a native speaker can fire off comments more quickly and in a more agile manner. The same applies for giving presentations and asking questions in front of a large group. We must think of ways of making this easier. How will I have heard several ideas, but taking advantage of our online communication channels, something quite as easy as making your talk or even slides available before a presentation can help people who are not familiar with the language. You think that slides with what you are saying spelled out is boring? Well, yes, but reading helps non-native speakers understand what you are saying. On GoDH, we had an interesting discussion on developing a few rules that would make discussion on an international list, even if mainly in English, easier for all involved. This included such basic things as trying to avoid acronyms, colloquial expressions, 
uh, remembering to offer additional offer, uh, sorry, remembering to offer additional information that helps with context. I mean, not, not everybody necessarily knows that the University of Coventry is in the UK or that UCLA or UCLA, what it stands for, or what JISC stands for, just like I don't expect you to know what UNAM uh, stands for. I think it is an awareness and a consideration for the people you are conversing with. Uh, there are actually a lot of small big details that can actually be changed quite easily. Some things are done in a certain way just because that is the way they have always been done. And it isn't until somebody points out that this is racist or sexist or exclusive in some way or other that it is changed. Melissa Terrace, for example, recently posted in her blog about noticing how Tay continued to use one to indicate male gender and two to indicate female. She took issue with this and wrote to the Tay forum and it was changed. Some time ago, the Red HD was added to a list of DH centers um, on their webpage. Mexico was listed under South America. I wrote to them and I said, we're not in South America and it got changed. So we must not underestimate the power of speaking up. But how do we address the bigger issues? On the one hand, we must be realistic and realize that DH works like other academic fields. If other areas such as engineering or biology were well-adjusted, multilingual, multi-ethnic, gender-balanced communities, then we should be very, very worried. But by and large, DH seems to reflect the way academia works in the world with English as the predominant language and with a few countries having a far larger representation and research output. I cannot speak for other fields, but what I like about DH is that there seems to be a genuine concern to do something about this. I also think that the strengths and talents of the DH community are particularly tuned to becoming more inclusive. We have a combination of scholars who can provide important insights to do this properly. Cultural theory, post-colonial studies, feminist perspectives, and other forms of critical theory can make us aware of the problem. But DH's capacity and willingness to build things can allow us to create projects and tools that help us to be more inclusive. How about crowdsourcing translations? Can we create back-end tools that will let others easily translate news and events from ad hoc website or CenterNet or Humanist? Or how about working on automatic translation to English of information from other sources that we are just discovering? What about building an international database of DH projects? We know enough about standards and building crosswalks for metadata that there is no reason why an international database cannot harvest information from numerous databases around the world which are adapted to their own local needs but can still share information. Why, why should we build one single database that will not necessarily fulfill such broad multilingual and multicultural requirements? DH can handle and would greatly benefit from managing larger, more complex data inputs than it that respond to more diverse needs. And if one of the advantages of DH is our capacity to manage big data, then what greater challenge than trying to be as inclusive as possible and building tools that will allow this? I also think we need to incorporate cultural critique of DH into the way our projects work so that we are aware and do not unconsciously build in features or aspects that perpetuate exclusion instead of reducing it. For this, I think we have to find a balance between these two very different approaches to, the, to DH. I think that now that we have established an interest in being more open and inclusive, we have to think very carefully about how to go about doing this. It is important that we understand that we sometimes unconsciously incorporate assumptions into our proposals and initiatives that do indeed affect inclusiveness or representation. We must be careful to avoid playing catch-up 
or initiatives that automatically assume that the objective is to help countries currently on the periphery to become just like the model DH center. We can learn and benefit from each other and collaboration should work in both directions. Methods that have worked effectively in one cultural setting may fail spectacularly in another. And certain reasoning of how things should work does not apply similarly to other frameworks. Models, surveys, truisms should be placed in context. Periphery countries can contribute by framing and stating more explicitly how and in what ways true collaboration can be achieved. I also think that we should all share the extra work of being inclusive. Surveys and other initiatives that look to benchmarking the DH community could incorporate much more material if they thought about translating their data collecting tools. Organizing events in different countries is fantastic, and for example, I think that that camp has worked very well in that aspect. But it is also important that scholars don't just move from the periphery to the center for meetings, conference, research visits, etc., but that scholars move from the center to the periphery as well. When writing grant proposals for DH projects, we can think about other potential audiences. What about budgeting an extra $100 for translation or allocating more time for dissemination of our work in other forums or channels that, do not that are not necessarily the mainstream ones? I am well aware that all of us already have tight schedules and budgets, and the degree to which we will be able to be more inclusive will vary. What I hope is that this awareness will lead us to do things a little bit differently, either in the small or in the large details. The humanities, I'm sorry, yeah, I wanted to skip a few lines because I noticed I was going over time. What I hope is that this awareness will lead us to do things a little bit differently, either in the small or in the large details. I strongly believe that all, human, all areas of human endeavor can benefit from multiple points of view. The humanities as a set of academic disciplines that study the human culture has even more reason, and this is something that the digital humanities cannot ignore. If we have only a few studies on a few subjects and from only one or two perspectives, then we are sadly shortening and restricting our field. DH will benefit as a whole if we include data and input from more countries and more languages. The DH community has the building and making capacity to develop innovative and creative ways of using digital technologies to become more inclusive and open. The community also has the capacity to develop resources and tools to handle multiple and complex data entry points to aid in this endeavor. The DH community also has the academic know-how to reflect critically on how and what we are building. I am well aware that this is not an easy task. I hope that we will be able to use our particular combination of technical skills, humanities background, and our now famous good nature to work towards achieving a more inclusive and open field from, from which we shall all benefit considerably. I want to thank you all very much for your attention.